0: Well, good morning. Hope you all are doing well and uh, have had a great week so far. And um, if you have, not if, uh, you should have your Bibles. Turning your Bibles uh, to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 7, beginning in verse 11 here in a moment. The title for the message this morning is A Tale of Two Parades. Uh, we're going to be visiting a small village known as Nain, where two different types of parades are going to collide. And what these parades represent are two different types of lives that we live and lives we will encounter, and sometimes things we will experience ourselves even as believers. And what is believed to be one of the most well-known introductions to any story ever written, Charles Dickens pinned these words to his book, A Tale of Two Cities. He wrote, It is the best of times. It is the worst of times. It is the age of wisdom. It is the age of foolishness. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was a spring of hope. It was a winter of despair. We had everything before us, and we had nothing before us. We were all going to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. And I think the opening of that book actually captures the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and what we encounter through the Gospels There was a sense of awe with Jesus. There was a wonder. There was light that had come to the world, and life was coming to people. But then we have crouching in the shadows throughout the Gospels. There was anger. There was darkness. There was worry. There was death. And the passage this morning captures the best and worst of times. It is a collision of light and darkness coming together. There are two types of parades that people are living in right now. There is the parade of life, and there is the parade of death. And our passage reveals that we will also experience these two types of parades, and we know people who are living in these types of parades. So let's begin in verse 11, where the word of the Lord says, Soon afterward he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Verse 15, The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you as your children. Some of us here are seeking. And Lord, I pray that your Spirit would speak to us all in a way that only it can that you would open up the Scriptures to us so we may have a deeper understanding of who you are and our relationship with you or the relationship we need to begin with you. So, Father, remove me. Just let me be an instrument of your righteousness. Let your Spirit speak through me. Uh, Father, your wisdom is the only wisdom we need. We pray that you alone be glorified through the preaching and hearing and studying and understanding of your Word, and that your kingdom and will will be done in each and every life here this morning. Forgive us if we failed you in any sort of way this morning as we've worshiped you. And Father, I pray it's been in spirit and truth. And we pray all these in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, this event here in Luke chapter 7 is only recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Matter of fact, the city or village or town of Nain is only mentioned this one time in Scripture. Though archaeologically this town has never been discovered, many people believe it's now in the current village of Nine, which is spelled N-E-I-N. And though we may not know for sure, here's what we can know for sure about the city or the town or the village. Luke's audience would have known where and what he was talking about. Otherwise, there would have been no reason for Luke to mention this town by name. It's believed that the village was about 20 to 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, which would be about a day's journey, because we have to keep in mind they mostly traveled on foot. It's probably the location of the knights who say, Ni. Just kidding, don't write that in your notes. Ni. You know, okay, never mind. Never mind. Uh, um, let we get back on track. So Luke begins with a general time stamp here, verses 11. He says, soon afterwards. Some versions of Scripture say the next day. Luke does this frequently in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts where he just gives this general time stamp of soon afterwards. What it's doing, it's connecting it to the events preceding that we looked at last week in verses 1 through 10 where Jesus healed the centurion servant. As we mentioned, Luke has compiled this gospel primarily through eyewitness accounts, and there are several eyewitnesses on this event in Nain. I can just picture Luke going to the city of Capernaum and hearing of Jesus' teachings, hearing of his miracles, his casting out demons, and then someone in Capernaum probably said to Luke, hey, if you think what he did here was awesome, you should travel down to Nain and ask them what Jesus did there for a widow in raising her son. His disciples and a great crowd have come with him, we're told there at the end of verse 11. And they come to the city, and most likely these individuals came with him from Capernaum. There's possibly some individuals who were stragglers that kind of attached themselves to a crowd. I mean, if you see a large crowd going in one direction, following an individual, we would probably ask, hey, what's going on? Where are you going? What are you doing? And they probably said, well, you've got to see what this guy can do, because there's still... Figuring out who Jesus is. I mean, he's kind of like you know, Forrest Gump. When Forrest Gump went running, people just started running with him. That's Jesus just attracted people. People wanted to be with him. And so this parade arrives in the city of Nain and it collides with another parade that is leaving the city. Just as a reminder, when God does things, when God comes, when God says things, there are no coincidences. Jesus didn't just happen to show up in the city of Nain at this moment when a funeral procession was coming out of the city gates. He arrived precisely when he was supposed to. So that's a great reminder for us as a child of God. Nothing happens in our life by accident. God is in control of it all, and it is all part of his divine plan, even if we don't understand it, even if we have questions about it. This is the only time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is said to have compassion Towards someone, That word is mentioned two other times in the Gospel of Luke. It's both in Jesus' parables, one with the parable of the prodigal son, one with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, the other Gospels report Jesus having compassion, but Luke only does it this one time here in Luke chapter 7. The word compassion carries the meaning of having pity, but it doesn't just speak of an emotion or a state of mind. Compassion speaks of being moved to such a place that you have to do an action. And the compassion of Christ in our passage this morning was the acting agent for the miracle. In verse 13, again, this is the first time in Luke's gospel to which he points to Jesus as Lord. And this is done with intention. Luke is writing to the first century church who would have understood the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is by this confession that we have in our faith that He is our Lord and Savior. The title Lord means Master, It means head. It means secure possessor. Jesus Christ, when we say He is our Lord and Savior, He saved us from our sins, but now He is our master. He is our head. We are to have the mind of Christ and the walk in the Spirit, and He is our secure possessor of our salvation. Unlike the passage we looked at last week with the healing of the centurion's servant, there is no Act of faith that creates this miracle. Jesus just simply acts on his own. The focus of our story is that Jesus' actions towards this woman, this mother who is going through a terrible loss in the midst of his funeral procession. And he comes up, and you notice the first thing he says in verse 13. He tells the mother, Do not weep. Now just put yourself in her situation. If you're at a funeral of a loved one, and someone came up to you and said, Hey, stop crying. You'd probably be taken back. You'd probably gasp. You'd be aggravated. It can be assumed that no one from the city of Nain knew who Jesus was at this moment. They may have heard the whisperings of something happening up in Capernaum, but they've never seen him physically. They've yet to experience the power of God from him. And so Jesus tells the mother, hey, don't cry. And then he goes and he touched the bier. By the way, the bier is like a stretcher. It's an open coffin because the Jewish people didn't bury their dead. They placed them in tombs. And so he goes up and he basically stops the funeral possession. That's what the touching meant. Hey, let's stop what we're doing right now. Again, put yourself in that situation. You're amidst the crowd, and, and you see this man stand up and stop a funeral procession of a loved one. We would probably be aggravated and taken back. We would want them to be escorted out of the place. But what Jesus is doing with these two things, with the touching and the speaking to the mother, is he's setting up the expectation of the miraculous. And so this funeral procession is just sit there watching, what is this guy doing? Why is he doing what he's doing? And then they have to wait for the answer. It's at this point in time that Jesus directs his attention finally to the young man, and he tells him to arise there at the end of verse 14. The word arise means to get up. You notice what happens when Jesus tells the dead to get up? They get up. Not only did he get up, but he spoke which was the affirmation of the resurrection, the affirmation of the miraculous. Jesus could have just said, get up, and lifted him up, but the fact that he speaks showed that this was not a ventriloquist act. And then Jesus gives the young man back to his mother, which is saying that he's returning to her what she has lost. But can you imagine the first thing this young man saw when he opened his eyes from the dead? Jesus Christ looking directly at him and smiling and said, get up. And then he ushers him back to his mother. The miracle itself is meant to bring healing not to the young man, but healing to the mother. The response of the crowd is probably something we would have experienced as well. Look there in verse 16. It says, fear seized them all. That word fear means profound awe. It means they were gripped with speechlessness. They gasped. <gasps> And then they just stood there and watched. And then it says in verse 16, they glorified God. It's interesting here because it doesn't say they glorified Jesus. But no doubt this is done on purpose by Luke. Just as he did with the title Lord, he is now led by the Spirit to point that Jesus is equal with God. Because he could only do the things he did if he had the power of God dwelling inside of him and he was the power of God himself. We're also told in verse 16, they began praising God. First, they said concerning Jesus, a great prophet has risen among us. Old Testament prophets spoke for God and sometimes performed the miracles of God. So Jesus is validating his ministry by doing both, and the people recognized him as a great prophet. There have only been two prophets in Israel's history which raised the dead, and that was Elijah and Elisha. The statement that they are making is pointing to these two prophets and placing Jesus on equal ground with them. And we, of course, know Jesus was more than just a great prophet. But it's interesting how many similarities in the Gospel of Luke there are between Jesus and Elijah and Elisha, particularly with Jesus and Elijah's raising of the widow's son in 1 Kings chapter 17. John Carroll points out in his commentary, both Jesus and Elijah arrived through the city gate. Both deal with a mother who had lost a young son. Both individuals, the, de- the corpses had been carried, In First King Elijah carries the young child. Here the crowd is carrying the young man toward Jesus. After both resurrections, the child is, both of them are delivered back to their mother. In both occurrences here with Jesus in First Kings, through the mother's words, these two prophets are proclaimed to be from God. John Edwards points to the Gospel of Luke. There are some 15 references or allusions to Elijah and Elisha and it, that appear in Luke's depiction of Jesus' Galilean ministry. He points out the reason for this because it coincides with Jesus having the prophetic, the prophetic office, the miraculous power and healing, and the inclusion of the Gentiles. Even though Jesus was the Savior for the Jews, the Messiah for the Jews, he included the Gentiles, and we saw that when he healed the centurion's servant. kind of makes you wonder if Luke and Paul at this time are having a little Bible study together on the individuals of Elijah and Elisha and it impacted the way Luke would write his gospel. We're told then in verse 16, the crowds then said, Then God has visited his people. See, the crowds in this moment, they understood only God could raise the dead. Only God could do what this man is doing. And so they were proclaiming, God has visited us. This is an Old Testament language. It means that God has sent redemption. He has sent help. It is a proclamation that people were recognizing God was acting on behalf of his people once again. Because we have to keep in mind, up until this point, it's been about 400 plus years of silence from many prophets. Finally, our passage concludes in verse 17 in this report about him spread. The word report can also be read as word or news, and it began to spread, and this is where we get Luke's eyewitnesses even more so. It's also going to set up what we're going to look at next week concerning John the Baptist. The Greek word for report is logos. It's the same word that John uses in the opening of his gospel. In the beginning was the word, the Logos and the Word was God, and the Word Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Logos is Jesus. The report is Jesus. The news in this area is now Jesus. And as I began to tell you, this is a story about two parades. There is a parade of life, and there is a parade of death. And these two types of parades are the types of lives that people are living in today, and perhaps here this morning. Sometimes, even as believers, though, we're going to come into the parade of death even though we're called to live in the parade of life but we're not called to remain there so let's deal with the parade of death first the first thing we see in our passage is the parade of death is one of loss Though the emphasis of this mother is on this mother son being raised from the dead Luke points out concerning the mother in verse 12 that this was her only son and she was a widow And just think about that, because we can read right over that. This was her only son, and she was a widow. This woman has experienced incredible loss in her life. She has lost her husband, and now she has lost her only child. The reality is, the longer we live on this earth, we're going to experience this parade of death and loss through family members, through friends. It's a fact of life. These bodies are not meant to last forever. Praise the Lord. (laughs) These bodies are not eternal. We're going to get new ones. Praise the Lord. But when we experience loss through death, it is to remind us, you know what, while we're here, we have a mission, we have a task. We have to be impacting people who are still living in this parade of death, who are still living through loss. This is what death is meant to remind us. Yes, we go through mourning. Yes, we cry. Yes, we go through those times of struggle. But it reminds us it is imperative as God's people we must be sharing the gospel before people die in their sin because there is no second chance unlike this young man. Loss in death is remind us we are to be active in proclaiming the gospel so people won't be lost in eternity. Second thing we see is the parade of loss is one of solitude. This woman was now completely alone. Yeah, we're told there was a considerable crowd from the town with her, but that was normal in this day and age. Communities in the Jewish communities, the town would rally around others, and they would mourn with them. They would go all go to the funeral service, and they would all support them. But when Luke says that she has lost her only son and she is a widow, Luke is pointing out that she is now completely alone. And if you are not in Christ and you're here this morning, you are living in the parade of death. You are living in solitude. You are living alone. And here's what I mean by that you don't live in the promise of Jesus when He says, I will be with you always. You don't have that promise over your life. You don't live in the promise that the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling inside of you. You don't live in the promise that nothing can separate you from the love of God. The Lord is not your shepherd. Heaven is not your home. You are completely alone and defenseless against the schemes of the devil. Here's some good news. That can change today. And here in a moment I'll share how that can happen. But in Christ, if we are in Christ, we have Christ. We have God on our side. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. I mean, we don't have to fend for ourselves But if you are not in Christ, you don't have those things, and you have to fend against yourselves, against the schemes of the devil, and that is a battle you cannot win. Next we see with this parade of death that it is one of uncertainty. We have to get some context to the way a widow would have to live now. In this day and age, a widow who is now childless meant that she had no one to turn to. We don't know how old she is, but Jesus titles the the son a young man, which implies anywhere between the age of twenty-one and forty. If it's closer to forty, then this mother's probably beyond being able to bear children again. And so there's probably not many suitors in this small village of Nain that is gonna look at a motherless child and a widow and see her as a good fit. Most likely in this day and age, seeing that she has lost her husband, now she's lost her only child. Some people are going to be in question, I wonder if she's cursed by God. I wonder if she's untouchable. The reality of her situation is that her family line is not going to continue. There is no one left to take care of her. Men in this day... In the Bible's day, were the ones who went out to work. They would bring home the income. The mothers would stay home and raise the children and take care of the home. This woman didn't have a Naomi like Ruth. She didn't have someone who would be willing to step in and take care of her and provide for her so she could survive. She was in loss. She was in solitude. She was in a place of uncertainty about her future. What am I going to do next? For those who have yet to accept Jesus Christ, this is where you live. They don't have the promise of eternal life. They don't have the blessed assurance that when this life is over, something better is waiting. That's a tragic and scary place to live. To not know your eternity is secured in heaven. To not know that your name is written in the book of life. To wonder what happens after all this. To live in fear. To live in uncertainty about what comes next. That's the parade of death. Finally, we see the parade of death is self-centered. Obviously, this woman and the crowd, they were mourning. They were focused on something. We, We would all be in that same situation. We would be focused on what is happening, this loss that is a great and deep loss. But did you notice they were so focused on what was happening in the moment, they were blind to see who was standing with them in that moment. They couldn't see it. They were so focused on what was happening in their life You can know if someone is living in the parade of death if all they think about is themselves. They're self-centered instead of Christ-centered. The goal of life is to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's focused on fulfilling their desires, has little perspective or concern for other people. If you ever wonder why marriages fail, why... Families fall apart while children are left with one parent and sometimes no parents. Why politicians get caught in scandals. Why corruption seems to be running wild in the world. It's because people are living self-centered parade of death. See, they have the mark of Cain on them. They've heard God's judgment, but they've decided, I'm going to do it my way. Jude tells us that these things are going to happen. Hear the word of the Lord from Jude. It says in the last time there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions, meaning they'll be self-centered. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. If we wonder why people do what they do or why things happen the way they happen, it's because God declared it in His Word that is what's going to take place. But then in Jude, God tells us this is how we are to be despite this parade going on around us. It says, "But you beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal. and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Those who are in the parade of death, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. See, if we're in the parade of life, we can't be self-centered. To say that we're going to stay in the love of God means that we're going to be sacrificial because that's what God's love is. It is sacrificial. We don't, even, we don't just think about our relationship with God. We think about other people's relationship with God, and if they have a relationship with God. We can all fall into the parade of death, though. We're all going to experience parts of this parade. We're all going to experience loss of time. We're going to experience the feeling of being alone, the thoughts of uncertainty which are going to lead to worry, the temptation to think only of ourselves. But as God's people, we cannot remain there. We cannot live in that parade. We have to move to the parade of life. The parade of life is one of victory. That's what this whole story is pretty much about. Jesus revealed to the people of Nain, he had the power to give victory over death through the resurrection of this dying son. So today we don't live in loss, we live in the victory that is found in Jesus Christ. We await in the promise that one day he is going to return and take us home. We Wait for the victory parade that is revealed in Revelation 19, where we see Jesus coming on a white horse and showing off his thigh tattoo. We wait for the victory when he's going to throw the false prophets and the beasts into the dungeon, the angels of Satan. We are the ones who are found in the book of life in Revelation 20, who will live in the new heaven and the new earth of Revelation 21. In Romans chapter 8, hear this. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Did you catch that? We're not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors. How can we be more than conquerors? Well, Paul says, because nothing, if we're in the parade of life, if we belong to God through Jesus Christ, nothing can separate us from that love. Nothing has the power to take us out of that parade. And in Christ, we have been given the complete victory over sin, death, and Satan. I say it's because the parade of life is one of companionship. In passage, there are two crowds. One's mourning, one's with Jesus. Like I said everywhere Jesus went, crowds would gather. Sometimes they'd gather, they'd gather even when he didn't want the attention. They would just be drawn to him. They wanted to be with him. And that makes sense because I think we, if we belong to Jesus, we want to be with him too. But as mentioned last week, the Bible gives us this incredible promise where two or more are gathered in his name. He is there in their midst. That means we are in the presence of Christ right now. We are with him. You didn't just come to church. You were drawn to Jesus just like these crowds have been drawn to Jesus. And like the widow who was alone, we now have God the Father. If you're a child of God, you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and God's eternal family, which are gathered here this morning to form the church. And so when we do experience aspects of the parade of death, we know because of the promises of God we're not alone. We're told in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, And let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of sun, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I've heard it said, and I'm sure some of you have too, well, I don't feel like I have to go to church to be a Christian. Let me say, there is truth to that. You don't have to do anything but put your faith in Christ alone to be a Christian. But if you are a child of God, you should want to be with other children of God. And the Bible says you actually need to be with other children of God because God did not create you to be alone or live in solitude. The book of Proverbs tells us in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desires. He breaks out against all sound judgment. You know what our desires are? You know what that's that's pointing to? It's pointing to our flesh. It's pointing to our sinful nature. And so we're to be in companionship with believers so that we can grow together, sharpen one another in the faith, to be transformed more like Christ and less like the world. Unlike the parade of death, the parade of life is one of certainty. We won't elaborate on it because we already hit on it a lot, But we need to live in the promises of God, the promises that He speaks over through His Word. And here's something we have to have conviction about about God's Word. God never goes against His Word. He never goes against His promises. He never goes what he has already spoken into existence. And so we get to live in certainty that this is truth and we can hold to this truth no matter what's going on in the world, no matter what conflict is happening. We have this absolute truth to guide and lead us and we can live in the certainty that when death comes or we die ourselves, that we have the eternal security that God has promised us through his word. We belong to him forever. And he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Another thing we see is the parade of life is one of compassion. It's mentioned compassion isn't just a pity. It's not just feeling sorry for someone. Compassion is the emotion and the feelings that is followed by action. That means as we live in the parade of life, that doesn't allow us to shake our head at the world. It doesn't allow us to say, I can't believe they did that. What compassion does, where we live, Is compassion feels pity for a fallen world and wants to bring the only redemption, only remedy to that problem in Jesus Christ. We become brokenhearted because we see people who are still living in a broken and fallen world. And then we do what God tells us to do. We become ministers of reconciliation and restoration, which can only be found in Christ. Final thing we see is the parade of life is one of worship. I love this image. Pray to death collided with the parade of life at the city gate of Nain. And did you notice what happened? Mourning turned to worship. They encountered Christ and the power of God, and mourning became worship. And that's what it should be for us as God's people. Before we were in Christ, we were dead in our sin. And then at some point in time, we collided with the light and the life of the world who was life and gives life. And the only response is now we become living, daily worshipers. Just as God did here in Luke chapter 7, God stepped out of the heavens and he visited his people. He came to us to help us, to restore us, to redeem us, to act on our behalf because we could not save ourselves. So God's people are to be worshiping people, and we shouldn't let that freak us out. That doesn't mean we go about our life like it's a musical, okay? It means we go about our life seeing the glory of God and praising the glory of God, seeing his touch on all of his creation because it screams his glory. And we worship him maybe through song, but we worship him just by proclaiming his glory. Question we have to answer this morning, question some of us have to answer this morning, is this which parade are you in which parade are you in and i don't mean for a season of life we're all going to experience the parade of death i mean which parade do you belong to permanently parade of death or the parade of life because you can only be in one parade and the only way you can be in the parade of life is if you are found in christ Some of y'all might be here this morning and you're exactly like the crowds in the city of Nain. You came here this morning not really expecting much to happen or expecting much to change. But now you realize there needs to be a change in your life. Now you realize you've been walking in the wrong parade and you need to switch. This is why we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the Gospels. Because the word gospel means good news and I've got great news for you. God created you for a relationship with him. And God knows all about you. There's not a thing in your life that is hidden from him, and he still wants you in a relationship with him. The issue we all have had at one point in time is our sin is separating us from that relationship, from that, that purpose God created us for. And so some of us are going to try to do good things. We're going to start going, I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start reading my Bible. I'm going to start listening to Christian music, only Christian music. But see, we can't do enough good things to earn the gift of salvation that God is giving us. That's why Jesus Christ had to come. That's why Jesus Christ had to live the life he lived perfectly according to God's word. That's why Jesus Christ had to die on the cross. That's why Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Because we can't save ourselves. But God has visited his people. And the Bible says that this invitation for forgiveness for your sins is open to anyone and everyone. And if you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he rose again from the dead, that you might be forgiven for your sins, and he's offering the gift of eternal life, the Bible says, now that you have that in your heart, and you believe it in your heart, you have to confess it. I need Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So I'm me be standing down here for a time of invitation. And if you're here and you know you're living in the parade of death, and you need to change to the parade of life, I'm going to ask you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved I need to be forgiven. We're going to pray together. I'm just telling you what's going to happen. We're going to pray together, and then there's going to be an eruption of celebration in this room. But maybe you're here, and Satan's just got you trapped in the parade of death, that loss, that uncertainty, that aloneness. And you know that's not the truth. Maybe you can come and kneel before the Father. Say, Father, help me see truth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you for everything you're doing for us. Thank you you've given us the the gift of eternal life, the opportunity to be forgiven, the opportunity to be called your children and heirs to your kingdom. And, Lord, you know every heart in this room. So if there's someone or many people who do not know you as their Lord and Savior, they've yet to make that a profession of faith. If I pray your spirit will grab a hold of the heart in such a way that they can't stay where they are. But, Lord, you know that sometimes we fall into Satan's schemes. We know that's not where you want us to live and where you want us to be. Father, forgive us and help us to see your truth. Help us to live in your promises. Then help us to take it to the world. As you forgive us, we failed you in any way. And we praise in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.